Well, it's so good for me to be back with you guys again. Um, good to see you here. I'm glad to see that it's summer here in Noblesville, too. Uh, our crowds in Carmel have been looking like this, too. So, But thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, being uh, faithful uh, to be here with us in worship on Sunday morning. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Psalm uh, 34, Psalm 34. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one like this on the floor around you somewhere. It's page 387 in this Bible. We're gonna spend a lot of time in Psalm 34 this morning. Um, you may remember, if you're old enough, January 15th, 2009, you probably don't remember what happened on that day, but I'm about to tell you so you don't have to remember, okay? January 15th, 2009 started like any other day for Captain Chelsea Sullenberger and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles. Uh, they were scheduled to pilot U.S. Airways Flight 1549 from New York City, from LaGuardia Airport in New York City, uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a flight that Captain Sullenberger, or Sully as he was known, had literally made thousands of times. But this flight would be different. As three minutes in and about 3,000 feet up in the air, the plane ran into a huge flock of geese, pulling some into the engines and disabling both of the engines on the plane. You remember this story? So uh, Captain Sullenberger had about four minutes to decide what to do with this Airbus A320 and its 155 people on board. He said, the only place in the whole metropolitan area of New York, Sully later wrote, one of the most densely populated places on the planet that you could even attempt to land a large, fast jet airliner was the Hudson River. It's long enough, wide enough, and smooth enough that we could attempt it. Well, you probably remember how this story ends. Uh, Sully did successfully land the aircraft in the Hudson River. Uh, no one was killed. Almost no one was seriously injured, and the whole 155 people were saved. Captain Sullenberger was hailed as a hero. He even received the Master's Medal from the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. Uh, he received the key to the city of New York, and he also got to be the uh, Grand Marshal at the Tournament of Roses Parade a little later that year. Uh, it was called by some aviation experts the most successful ditching in aviation history, which I guess if you've got to ditch an airplane, you might as well have the most successful one, right? Sometime after that incident, though, Newsweek, the reason I wanted to bring this up, Newsweek magazine ran an interview with Captain Sullenberger sometime after that. And the magazine, uh, the interviewer asked, I love the questions that these uh, journalists ask sometimes, asked, were you confident that you would not die? Let's just be straightforward. Were you confident that you would not die? I love, though, what uh, Sullenberger said. Here's what he said. He said, even though this was an unanticipated event for which we had never specifically trained, I was confident that I could quickly synthesize a lifetime of training and experience adapted in a new way to solve a problem I had never seen before. So that's what I did. Let me tell you why this applies to your life. <laughs> How often does life hand you an unanticipated event for which you were never specifically trained, right? I mean, in other words, does life ever throw you a curveball? Do you ever get something that you say, I've never seen this event before? We've all experienced something like that, right? I mean, maybe it's a loss. It's, it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friend, the loss of a job, uh, the loss of a marriage. Maybe it's bad news. It's a, it's a health problem. It's a financial problem. It's a, a business deal that's gone bad or some world event that has a profound impact on you. Maybe it's a damaged relationship with a child or a parent or with a spouse. When something like that happens and you're forced to reevaluate everything that you think you know about God and your faith and the world, it's important that you can, like Sully did, you can lean on a lifetime of training and experience to help you understand and process what's going on in your life. 
And so today we're continuing our series called The Father Is, and we're looking at, in this series, we're looking at eight attributes of God. Uh, Last week, Paul talked about the sufficiency of God and that he is perfectly complete within himself, but yet he chose to create us and he chooses to love us. And then over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven more things that we can know about God. Simple truths that we can engrave on our hearts so that they're easily accessible when we reach a time of crisis. You know, the Bible tells us that God is beyond our understanding. But even in that, there's a promise in Ephesians 1.17, a promise that we can know him better. And one way that we can know him better is to study his attributes or those things that are true about God. And so the attribute I want to look at today comes from, I mean, well, it comes from a lot of places in scripture, really, but the one I want to focus on is Psalm 34, 8. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And so the first uh, attribute that I want to talk about today, the second attribute of God is God is good. God is good. And if you grew up in a church where there was a call and response, uh, you've probably learned to say this, right? You, you may be used to saying this even by rote. The, the pastor or the worship leader or somebody would say, God is good. And you would say, all the time. And then they'd say, all the time. God is good. And, and even when you didn't mean that, you said it. And I think that's Okay. And I think sometimes we have to say things out of discipline. We have to say things so that we can get our heart in the right place, right? I think sometimes we have to say things that will help us believe them. But when we're not sure we believe it, isn't what we're really saying, I don't see that goodness in my life right now. Like, I, I, I think that God is good, but I don't see his goodness in my life right now. See, it's easy to admit the goodness of God in the abstract, isn't it? It's, it's easy to say, yeah, God is good. There's no doubt. You know, I'm, I'm really facing a hard time right now. I'm going through some stuff, but God is good. It's easy to say that in the abstract, but sometimes it's hard to get the reality of what that means. It's, it's pretty obvious when God is, that God is good when things are good. But when things are bad, when we really need God's goodness in our lives, well, it becomes a little harder. And how can you hang on this truth when you're barely hanging on? Well, honestly, I think the only way through this problem is theological, you got to wrestle with what the psalmist meant, the author meant when he wrote, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because the psalmist, who was no stranger to suffering himself, was able to see his way through the suffering and to, to capture this idea that God is good and to capture it for generations of people to see. And so to really grasp this truth, I think it's really important to understand that there are three different dimensions to the word good. In fact, there may be more than that. I found three as I've done my research over the past few weeks. Uh, three different ways we can see that, say that God is good. Uh, I've included these in your message notes. They're on the app if you want to follow along. Uh, number one is this. Goodness is a property of God. This is very simple. Goodness is a property of God. It's a descriptor of God. It's an attribute. What I'm telling you is goodness is an attribute of God. It's saying that God is good is like saying that grass is green. You know, it's one way to describe them. I can say that grass is green, but so are leaves and so are Christmas trees and so are gummy bears, although not good gummy bears. You know, the, you know the gummy bear hierarchy, right? It's like red, orange, white, and then licking your own sweat and then yellow. <laughs> and then it's actual grass and then green gummy bears. And that's the order that they go in, right? And so Greenness is just one attribute, just one property of, gra- of grass, just like goodness is just one property of God. But, but, but being green doesn't make something grass, right? But if I say grass is one of several species of plants with long, skinny, flexible, blade-like leaves used for ground covers in lawns, 
then we're getting somewhere. If you want to know more about grass, ask Matt Slipka. He can tell you all about it, all right? In the same way, saying that God is good as a description doesn't really do him justice, doesn't capture the fullness of his goodness. And so I think we need to go beyond that to really understand more about God's goodness. So let's look at what Jesus had to say about uh, God's goodness in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, uh, this story, Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. We know this man as the rich young ruler. He said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's how Jesus answers him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it's in this context, in this story, that we see the second uh, dimension to God's goodness, that goodness is a product of God. Goodness is a product of God. It's what he produces. He creates good. He makes good. In other words, God can only produce good things. He can only produce goodness. Let me show you what I mean. Keep, keep your finger in Psalm 34 because we're going to come back there, okay? But, but in, in Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.1. It's the first Bible verse I ever memorized. I was probably seven years old. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a great one to memorize. It's very easy. But, but it says, Genesis 1 says that God created the light and he separated it from the darkness. And then he created the sky and the land and the plants and the trees and the sun and the moon and the creatures of the sky and the earth and the sea. And all that God created, he looked at and he declared that it is good. God looked at everything that he made and he said, it is good. God and God alone gets to make that declaration because they were created by him and they were created for him. They were created for his purposes. So it's like this. Let's say you leave here today and you're hungry for lunch, you decide to go to lunch, and so you really want pizza. And for some reason, you end up on your own. Maybe you came here by yourself, maybe the rest of your family doesn't want lunch, so they go home, whatever, but you end up on your own. So you get to pick whatever you want for lunch. That never happens, right? But you get to pick whatever you want for lunch, and so you're not subject to the whims or the taste of anyone else, and so you decide, I want pizza. And so you go to Greek's Pizza over here on 10th Street, and you create your own pizza and you put uh, chicken and mushrooms and onions and artichoke hearts. That's what you really want, right? And gorgonzola cheese, because that's what you want. Nobody else ever likes that, but that's what you want. And, and they cook the pizza and they bring it out to your table and you take that first bite and the flavors all mix in your mouth and the cheese is melting down your chin. And you look at that pizza and you said, man, this is good pizza, and at that point, the only thing that matters to you is that you get to say it's good. And you get to say it's good because it was made for your purposes, right? And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If the guy behind the counter says, this is nasty, it stinks. Why do you want this? It doesn't matter. If, if your kids were there and they said, dude, dad, oh, why are you eating that pizza? doesn't matter. doesn't matter what they think. It matters what you think. It was created for your purpose. It's your pizza. And you look at it and you say, it's very good. You get to declare whether it's good or not. It's your lunch. You put it together. It's only for you. Have I lost you now? Everybody's thinking about pizza, aren't you? <laughs> like, that's too early for lunch, but I'm ready to go. God gets to declare what is good because it's made for his purpose. And because everything was made for him and by him, and because it all met his purposes, God gets to say it is good. God can only create good. And so Jesus, when he's talking to the rich young ruler, was trying to say, if you think I'm good, I must be from God. He's making the point that anything we think is good must find its source in God. Pastor and author Tony Evans says it this way. He says, the goodness of God is the standard by which anything called good must be judged. And, and then he goes on to say, it doesn't matter how good something looks or how good something makes you feel. If it's not from God, it's not good. 
This is why sin is so painful. Because sin masquerades as something good. It looks on the surface like something good. It looks like something that should be good. And that's why sometimes, man, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the things that gets you so frustrated with Christians is that we get so uptight about other people's behavior. Like, why does it matter to you? What's a big deal? I mean, if it looks good and it feels good, it must be good, so we should just do it, right? Well, the Bible tells us that sin is crouching outside your door, that it desires to have you but you must rule over it. Jesus talked about this. He says that we have a real enemy, Satan, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, Revelation says that our enemy leads the whole earth astray, that every one of us are deceived by the enemy. And sometimes when bad things happen, we can make the mistake of blaming those things on God when it's really our enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy. I mean, the truth is we live in a contaminated world the world we live in is dirty. It's still the same world that God created. It's the same world that God declared good, but it's been corrupted by the evil one. And some of that rubs off on us. And because of that, uh, the effects of sin, uh, even children of a very good God suffer from time to time. So we get cancer. We have children die. We have conflict with family and friends. People pick up guns and bombs and knives and fists and use them against people for all the wrong reasons. But that's not from God. And sometimes it's our own sin, our own sin that causes problems. In fact, some of you in this room right here are, are not sensing the goodness of God because you need to repent of your sin. That, 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 that you are in a pattern that is causing problems in your life. And you maybe don't see the connection, but there's something going on in your heart that's causing what's happening on the outside. Creation was completely good when it came from God. It's only man, it's only our sin that has contaminated the world. Psalm 119 says it this way, you, talking of God, you are good and what you do is good. So goodness is a property of God. It's a description of what, what, who he is. Uh, goodness is a product of God. And so far, I think most of us can agree with that. I think most of us can acknowledge those things because even when there are things that are wrong in our lives, we're, we're struggling to understand something. Uh, we know in our head that God has good in him and that God produces good things. But where we often have a hard time is with this third dimension of God's goodness. It's knowing and understand what he's provided for us. So the third way we can say that God is good is to say goodness is the provision of God. It's, it's the provision of God. It's what God provides for us. We see goodness in the things that God provides for us. We see goodness in his grace. His grace means that he gives his absolute best to us even when we deserve his worst. We see it in his mercy, which means that he promises to take away our misery. We see it in his truth. You know, God is the only one that you can trust to tell you the truth, to tell it like it is in love. We even see it in his discipline when God rebukes those he loves because we've strayed from the life that he has for us. You know, it's important that a good father, a good, good father will correct his children, will make sure that they have everything that's good that they need in their lives. You know, when we set dinner on the table for our kids, we always give them some sort of vegetable. And even when they don't like it, uh, they, they need to eat vegetables with their lunch and with their dinner. Why? Because we're bad parents? Well, probably if you ask them, that's, that's the reason why. But we know, we've learned from years of experience, not everything that, see, that is good seems good in the moment, right? You know that. That's why you exercise. 
That's why you eat vegetables. You know, we know that vegetables make you healthy and strong. So even if it's unpleasant in the moment, a good parent will make you choke those puppies down because you need what's inside of that. Romans 8, 28 says this about God. We know that all things, he says, and we know, the apostle Paul writes, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, here's what I want you to see. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says that in all things, God works for good. In all things, good things, bad things, and neutral things, in all things in our lives, God works those things for the good of those who love him. And some of you here today are in such a broken place that maybe all you need to hear is that, like that God has good intentions for you, that he's gonna fix what's wrong in your life, that that he's a safe place. That, that no matter how far you've wandered, that the goodness of God means you can fall hard into his arms and you can find a safe place to land, that he'll welcome you back. If you're a Christian, you can be sure that even in the difficult times, you have the assurance that God is working for your good. I wanna show you the same thing in Psalm 34, Psalm 34, 19, if you've got your finger there. Psalm 34, 19, the righteous person may have troubles. It says even, scripture reminds us, even with a good God who's completely sovereign over everything, scripture warns us that that people will face suffering. His people will face suffering. But check out the second part of this verse. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. See, God is shown to be good from our experience. There's there's an experiential nature to God's goodness. He's never faced a problem he couldn't solve. He's never been surprised. God's never had to choose the lesser of two evils like we have to do sometimes. God has never and will never and can never do anything that's less than completely good. Now, what this means for you, if you're a Christian, uh, is that the circumstances in your life don't get the last word. Like your tough situation, your, your illness, your broken relationship, whatever it is, even death, Even death does not get the last word. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know, Paul says, and we know that all things work for good. And we know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can know that even if you can't see how and even if you don't know when, that God is gonna use what's going on in your life for good. Now, we don't have that assurance if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you may experience God's blessing. I mean, Matthew 5 says he causes the sun to rise on evil and good and rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But God wants you to experience all of his blessing, the fullness of his blessing. He's being patient with you. He's waiting for you to make a decision. He desires for you to find your way back to him and experience the full extent of his goodness. If you've never made that decision, what's keeping you? What's stopping you from experiencing all of God's goodness in your life? If you've never made that decision to follow Christ, what's holding you back? Let's talk about that today, you and me. Let's talk about that after the service. Because God has given followers of Jesus the ability to enjoy his goodness in ways the rest of the world can never understand, never appreciate. Jesus himself said that the knowledge of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. And if you grew up around church and you grew up around some Christians, you may have developed this warped view that, once people become Christians, they just kind of drag themselves through life. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And, and honestly, Christians, we are part of the problem. I mean, how often do we go through our days angry at the world, angry at the stupid stuff that people say on Facebook, angry at, 
what people believe, that not everybody's like us, because well, let me tell you, if everybody was just like me, man, the world would be such a better place. Some of us go through life with a permanent scowl on our face. And we create this perception that being a Christian means you become boring or grumpy or even mean. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth as followers of Jesus. We should be the most joyful people on the planet because we know we have a God that loves us so much that while we were still sinners, he sent his only son to come and die for us so that we could have an eternal relationship with him. And because of that, we should enjoy life more than anybody else in the world. We, we should enjoy nature more. We should enjoy good food more. We should laugh harder, love longer, live fuller, enjoy all of God's creation more than anyone else. Why? Because we know the creator. We have a relationship with him. I read the story one time of a pastor from L.A. who got the chance to be, uh, have a small speaking part in a Hollywood film. And because he was in the movie, even just for a few seconds, he got invited to the, the premiere, the gala uh, that they have when they launch a new movie. And he was there in his black tie and tails, and he was there with everybody else in their black ties and tails, their evening gowns, and, and, and with all these people, some famous, some not so famous, uh, sitting all around him. And they went into the theater and they watched the movie. And then when the movie was over, something strange happened and it had an impact on him. It, it, it made, a, made an impression on him because what happened when the movie ended, nobody got up. They stayed in their seats and then the credits started to roll. And as the credits rolled, people would start to applaud for everybody that had a part in making the movie. That they would, they would cheer for the celebrities and the stars, and then they'd cheer for the, the lesser celebrities and the not-so-stars, and then the, the schmucks like him, you know, that were just a part of the movie. And then they started to cheer for, like, the cinematographer and the special effects people and the sound effects people, and then for the key grip and the best boy and the people that we have no idea what they even do. I mean, everybody stayed in their seats and applauded until all of the credits were over. And what he realized was that the people in that room realized more than anyone else, appreciated that movie more than anyone else because they knew the people who'd made it. They knew the love and effort that went into making that movie. See, see the issue is not whether or not we enjoy good things from God. The issue is how we enjoy God's goodness. How should we enjoy God's goodness? Because we know the one who created everything, who created us and calls it all good, we should be able to appreciate more than anyone else the goodness of God. And how do we do that? Well, we enjoy God's goodness by thanking him for it. We thank him constantly for it. We need to be thankful for his goodness, express gratitude for his goodness. Too often we're like the ungrateful children who ask their parents for 10 birthday gifts and then cry when we get nine. You know, we accept that good is just the way things are supposed to be instead of admitting, like scripture says, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. We tend to focus on the blessing we're missing instead of the ones that we have. But really, when we enjoy a great meal, we shouldn't just say that was a great meal. We should say that God is great for providing that meal. You know, when we see a beautiful sunset or sunrise, we need to give credit to God for it. He, he didn't have to make the trees or the flowers beautiful, but he did. Thank him for that. He didn't have to make food taste good or birds sound pretty, but he did. Thanks be to God. You know, as we wrap up today, I just wanna point you back to where we started in Psalm 34. I think it gives us great instruction for how we respond to the goodness of God. Psalm 34, one says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. 
I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, we may never understand why we face certain hardships in our lives, why certain things happen the way that they do. But we can be confident, just as grass is green, that God is good. And we should worship him for that. And if we can train ourselves to think about that and remember that and to praise him for his goodness, then, well, when the engines go out and the plane starts headed down, we'll know exactly what to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the truth that you are good, that, that, you, that goodness is a part of you. It's a character of yours. It's that you produce only good things, Lord, and that you provide for your children good things. God, I thank you that you have a desire for each of us to know you and to know your goodness to its full extent. I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity through Jesus to come and worship the good things that you give us. God, thank you for that. Thanks for making yourself available to us. Thanks for making a way for us to have that eternal relationship with you. God, you are good. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name.